0: Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba news. Mm -hmm. Scuba Obsessed episode 336 was recorded live. July 27th, 2017. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where we have all sorts of great things going on. It is July after all. That can't seem to drive by a winery without some sort of special or band or something going on. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac?
1: I'm doing really fine. And as a side note, I took a little drive through the countryside today, and you are absolutely correct. Seems like every intersection had a go here, go there for wine or wine trail.
0: Yes, just, just around the corner. And we are averaging within five miles of my house two wineries a year opening up. So I think the density to wineries to houses is is about one to one. And also joining us this week, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin?
2: I'm doing excellent tonight, Darren. Uh, and how about yourself?
0: I am doing great as far as I can tell. I, I guess that is that the, the unit of measure I should be doing. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have, uh, a couple guests, no, no named guests this week or, uh, people in the chat room. They're numbered. So yeah, and that usually tells me that uh talk shoe is doing crappy.
2: Yeah, I've been trying to get people to come up with some names here, but uh they don't want to fess up yet. So.
0: The, the incognito. It's the censors. They want they want to see what we say. Well,
2: you know, well, you know I, I had a real hard time signing into talk shoe. I I had to sign in like three or four times and I imagine some of our regular people just probably got a little disgusted with it.
0: So. Yeah, that that can happen. I've I've seen that where uh, it's easier just to go click the guest button and not worry about it than to go and put your account information. So I, I, I mean, we're recording. It's quarter after 10 and we've been shooting for 930 lately. And you know, half of it's just been the internet's just so crappy slow anymore. I got to find some spot in town I can go camp out at to record anymore. Cause it just can't, can't get internet worth of crap anywhere.
1: A couple of people may be at that, uh, big presentation in Barry and tonight.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, I, I forgot about that. I drove by this, uh, sign and then I saw it in the paper. Uh, but our friend, uh, Terris did I say his name right? Or pretty yes, close? You did. Yeah. Uh, is speaking at the, uh, historical square there in Bering Springs. Oh, let's see. Let's, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Uh, very kind of a light news week this week. We have scuba divers are helping fight an invasive weed in Lake Tahoe. Scuba divers installed more than one hundred sun blocking barriers in the bottom of the lagoon in the south end of Lake Tahoe to help stun a growth of an invasive aquatic plant that has taken over man-made waterways in the Tahoe Keys, a community of more than one thousand homes next to the canals. They'll remain in place until October fifteenth, but will be put back again during the winter the warmer months. For the next two years, homeowners have been using the barriers in a smaller capacity for the past two years, but the recent installation is the largest use of the barriers in the community. The installations are at the beginning of the Tahoe Keys Property Owners Association multi-year plan to wipe out the plants, this according to Tahoe Daily Tribune. 2015 is when everything really took off when we started to try and control everything, said Greg Hoover, Association Water Quality Manager, Aquatic Invasive Species Management Coordinator. There were sprints in the past. We incorporated science into this, but in 2015, we bought into a consulting agency, and a scientist has a Ph.D. in aquatic plants. The association has spent 2.4 million put aside in its eradication program. The possibility of more funding coming through grants. The plant also envisioned small-scale testing of herbicides. A decision by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in September 2015 determined that some herbicides may be approved. On a case-by-case basis in Lake Tahoe. So in January, the association applied for permit to test low level of three herbicides in nine test sites in 2018. The test sites would cover about eight percent of the keys and would be a dead-end lagoon, far from the lake. Its a permit is proved and results are promising. Herbicides could be used to control, as a control method for weeds eradication of keys starting 2020. Hoover said. The test sites would have multiple surface-to-bottom barriers to ensure the herbicides, which are considered non-toxic to humans, fish, and wildlife, would not reach the lake, the association stated. The Tahoe Keys were created in the late 1950s by dredging an estimated 5 million cubic yards, which is about 3.8 million cubic meters of material, from the marsh at the mouth of the upper Tucky River. The effort destroyed much of the river's marsh, and major filtration systems from Lake Tao's largest tributaries. The resulting 172 acres or 700,000 square meters of warmer, calmer lagoons became prime habitat for aquatic evasive plants like the Eurasian milfoil and curly leaf pondweed. They now cover more than 90% of the channels. So what I'm guessing is going on in here is that if you've got this nice channel between your house and your neighbor's house, it's weeds right up to the surface.
2: Yeah, that's kind of how the uh, milfoil you know, goes. It, it likes the little shallow areas where it gets a lot of sunlight, and it'll just pack it out. I mean, we, we see that in a lot of our local lakes here too. I uh, you know Woods Lake has had an ongoing battle with trying to keep the milfoil down, and um, you know, I'm sure Mac, who pays a lot of attention to uh, you know what goes on in the local waterways, has seen it more than I have.
1: Yeah, the milfoil, I'm surprised it didn't use sonar because that will... Uh, get rid of those weeds. It's very effective. And uh, I wish they'd talk about the kind of Uh Some people over in Pawpaw, for example, near a couple of the um, resorts have gone to the trouble of making wooden platforms that are maybe inches off the bottom, covered their whole swim area with those, and then just drug those back out, stacked them. So now they have a nice sandy beach Oh wow!
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, something like a few years ago, they were actually manually hauling it out. They were taking some kind of sticks and stuff out by hand and and disposing dispose of them when they pulled
1: it out. Most people realize that if you run through that with your boat, all the props when it cuts up the weeds, each of those little pieces can reemerge as a new plant. So if it's that thick and they keep running their boats through it they're contributing to your own problem. Uh, you might have seen it at um, Shea Lake years ago. People put down rugs. They obviously took the rugs out of houses and put it down where the boat docking is mm-hmm. and that knocked down the whole weed bed tremendously and it didn't touch them. So you had maybe an air gap of a foot. Yeah, it was quite Hmm.
0: So, sounds like an interesting way. So the, the idea behind these mats here in California is that they uh, they they set them on top of the weeds and it just kind of smothers them and they get no sunlight.
1: Well, you figure the amount of uh, acreage there. I mean, they got two and a half million dollars, and Paul Paul was doing theirs with about six hundred thousand.
0: Yeah. Well, we got to remember this is California, so, so. they
1: should be able to do it. For, for, yeah. Well, you figure it out how much you think those houses cost?
0: Yeah. Well they did kind of touch on it it's like you know the they, part of this they created themselves you know they they dug these channels into the marshland so you got rid of the marshlands which were filtering your water and then you built a bunch of homes on it and i'm I'm sure all these homes have beautiful green lawns
2: yeah whenever they have to you know fertilize birds and of course that gets washed down into the water that just makes any of the uh, you know anything growing down there just loves it you know be it weeds be it algae. Be it bacteria, it just makes the stuff grow. Crazy.
0: Well, this next article, as... quite, go ahead.
2: I was quite impressed, uh, out to Indian Lake here locally. Uh, got to dive that with, uh, Eric Roloff and his son a few weeks ago. And, uh, that lake did not have much of a mucky bottom. You know, so many other lakes, you know, have, the uh, you know, see more around lakes which have a, you know, a lot of, uh, residences around them because they fertilize. Generally, the, the more grown up the lake, the more mucky the bottom is. But Indian Lake, very surprised, only had, I could even get my fingers full of muck before it before came into hard ground. So,
1: that, that's amazing. You're talking about Indian Lake and Dwayjack?
2: Uh Indian Lake and Vicksburg. one, one was just there
1: by Dwajak, though?
2: Just south of Kalamazoo.
1: Okay, because the Indian Lake we have over here has a mucky bottom similar to that in Pawpaw. And I was okay. curious if that was the same blade.
2: No, this is like just south of Kalamazoo. So I don't know. You know SASS is over at SASS's page. They guess they had someone contact them, wanted divers to go out there and reattach the uh, anchor on someone's swim raft. So uh, you know, Eric, his son, and myself went out there and uh, reattached it. Then we then we got dive into a lake which is, you know, private has no access, and really impressed. Next to no muck in that bottom there. I, I could not even get my fingers all the way in the muck. Aaron, you still there?
0: Yeah, I'm still here. I was just letting you guys go. Uh, this next article we have is a scuba diver finds his fiance's engagement ring. Uh, fiance has her engagement ring back thanks to her fiance, some determination, and his scuba guy diving gear. Evan Nadal and Aaron Helfen. Are getting married later this year. About a month ago, they were hiking around Gulf Haggis and went for a swim in the falls. They went back to hiking and after getting about a quarter of the mile up the trail, Helfen realized her ring was gone and that it must be in the bottom of the falls. They figured it was gone, but Nadu was determined to find it. On his day off, he returned with friend's scuba gear and spent more than two hours searching the bottom of the falls and found it. Nadu says he was in the water searching for so long his knees were turning blue. Wow. That that's doesn't sound too good. Borrowed his friend's scuba gear. They don't say whether he was certified, but I'm guessing he probably wasn't.
2: Well, if he spent two hours in the bottom, they looking for it. Um, wonder how deep it was, but you'd have to be pretty decent on his air if you did that with one single tank. I don't care how shallow it was.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. Just normal breathing. It seems like in a an eighty and in a, a couple hours you'd go through it. So I'm guessing that this was a fairly shallow. And maybe it was clear, too. Uh,
1: he, he, in two hours, he had to be very lucky, and the bottom had to be sandy and not muck, that's for sure.
0: Well, I'm wondering, would, could this been a, like a, a stone bottom where there really was no place for it to settle in? You know, maybe just like a scrub stone. Let me see if we can find this. Do they say where he was at again? Uh, Golf haggis. That, that sounds kind of like a dinner. You know, something where you, this is that. Pardon me?
1: Where is this at? Uh,
0: let's see. It's uh, CBS station 13 out of.
1: It's in Maine. It's in Maine. Gulf, guess main,
0: North Maine wood. Woods. Wow. Okay.
1: That's shallow, rocky sand on the bottom. I just got it.
0: Wow. It's, it's a beautiful looking area.
1: Yeah, the froze his butt
0: off, though. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Part of the Appalachian Trail Corridor. But they were already swimming in the water before. I mean, that's how she lost it. So, of course, that's what the story is of how they lost it.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I hope she warmed him up
0: afterwards.
1: <laughs> or maybe before. Mm-hmm.
2: Maybe that's how they lost it. Maybe that's how he knew where to look.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we turned you over right here, you see, and oh
0: yeah. Scuba team, you know, after you after you find the ring, maybe he'll go look for this next item. Uh there's a team looking on a recovery mission to find Julio Jones earring. Uh when Atlanta Falcons wide receiver Julio Jones lost his earring zipping around a jet ski on Lake Lanier, a full dive team was called in to retrieve it. Treasure hunting is nothing new for the divers, quite unique recovery mission for the scuba team to set on. Jones says he lost the earring, which is valued at $100,000 when he was knocked off his jet ski and thrown in the water. The earring popped out in the process and likely fell to the bottom of the pitch black body of water. Pitch dark, which I was rather surprised at, said uh, Bobby Griffin. The problem is the dive team, as experienced as they may be, is searching for a relatively small item in a difficult to spot to locate anything doesn't sound very optimistic for Jones, and he hopes he has recovering the earring. If nothing else, let it be a lesson to us all. When racing around a jet ski, maybe it's best to leave the jewelry at home for safekeeping. I'm trying to picture what type of earring does a football player have that is $100,000. doesn't
1: show that he's very smart.
0: Well, he's got the money for it,
2: and not what he wants, it, I suppose, but... You know, we. Covered stuff like this before, though. We talked about all uh, oh, back during the Olympics. Divers, in the Olympics, they actually have divers on staff to retrieve earrings from the athletes. Like, okay, if you're an athlete in an Olympic event. You like to have someone touching you, or your coach saying, hey, "Check the earring, buddy." You know? but people seem to feel entitled to wear their jewelry wherever they go. All right.
1: Well, then a swimming pool is one thing. But on a jet ski, you know that X marks to that? You can forget that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I see another article says it was a $150,000 ring, so it keeps getting more expensive. Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out how much money he makes to see how much of that hurt. Uh, they said he was drafted by the Atlanta Falcons, six overall in the 2011 NFL draft. So let's see, what was his contract? So I, I'm, I'm guessing that this is uh be like – you or me losing a thousand uh, bucks? A thousand bucks still hurts.
1: Yeah, it would.
0: Yeah, because I don't think he has. Complete... Wonder was we, offering for a reward on it there.
1: Who knows? I would a- think at least ten percent. That's normal finder's fee.
0: Oh, who knows? Maybe one of the divers did find mm. it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sixty-five, looking for a diamond in zero vis in an area that I lost on a jet ski, you know, you're already in deco time after an hour.
0: Yeah. Well, and then.
1: 500 bucks. That's not. And and he hired a team. They must work cheap.
0: Yeah. Or if he he got 500 bucks worth of of searching. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I bet he won't do that again. Count on it.
1: Well, I wonder if he had one in each year. I don't know
0: I don't know what's what the style is now for earrings do men wear them in both ears now or
1: I have an a on clue on that
2: last I knew it was just in one ear but's it been a while since I was looking at that too so
0: yeah i I'm I'm not much for uh unnecessary needles so i I never went with the piercing at least piercings you can see. Uh,
1: well, I'm not fond of pain anyway.
0: <laughs> so, his historic shipwreck I is really the, didn't need it. You <laughs> didn't need the image? <laughs> historic shipwreck. I really did
2: not need that image, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: so yeah, that's how you set off the metal detectors. Uh, historic shipwreck transformed into thriving marine refuge. Nearly 100 years after the SS Cuba sank in the bottom of the ocean, video shows how marine life has made the shipwreck their home. While sailing to San Francisco on a foggy night in September 1923, the SS Cuba sank in the bottom of the ocean near San Miguel Island, a small landform lying just out of Santa Barbara, California. Through all the ship's passengers and crew members were saved, the ship has remained at the bottom of the ocean for the past 94 years. The waters are now part of the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary-protected U.S. National Park. A new video from NOAA Office offers a glimpse into the SS Cuba submerged ruins. The ship's outer skeleton and steam engine parts have been since reclaimed by the Channel Islands underwater inhabitants. Ocean floor has grown into mostly ships' remain and marine life in the area is used the boat as a habitat. So, uh, there's really no surprise there. I'm trying to think of what the, what the point is. Uh, we know that all sorts of things love shipwrecks. That's so why we want more of them. said so there's at least 33 shipwrecks in a Santa Barbara channel laying between the island and the mainland. From 1850 to 1900, over 100 shipwrecks have been documented in the region. Divers and snorkelers are allowed to visit and swim through the remains of the shipwrecks, but altering the structure in any way is illegal. The video is produced as part of noah's Your Earth is blue YouTube series that shows shipwreck ruins of marines life flying in America's underwater national parks. I'll have to take a look at that see how that that comes out.
1: Oh well, that... if it's that shallow you know as well as I do anything of nice salvage value has been removed many years ago.
0: yeah, they don't say how deep this one is.
1: Well, if they're snorkeling, that can't be too deep.
0: Well, I think they're talking about, uh, the shipwrecks in general. Um, uh, but it could be that one. And then we have a deep dive in the Michigan, Michigan's eerie, beautiful shipwreck coast. This was an article out of the Chicago Tribune. Um, and they talk about that the Great Lake Shipwreck Museum estimates there are 600. Shipwrecks on Lake Superior's floor. A third are clustered on the coast between Munising and Paradise, Michigan, where the museum sits on Whitefish Point. But they said uh, only there, only six hundred. I know they always like to leave a zero off because I think well, there might not be six thousand. There's there's definitely many more than six hundred.
2: And i third serve them in the if you're on Whitefish, probably quite a few. Uh, you know, Munis and in uh, and the, uh, and the suit. You know there's a having a real hard time getting these links to load. I'm trying to share them in the chat, but they just don't want to go.
0: Yeah, and, and they go on and talk about it, but this is just uh, kind of a, a fluff piece, but uh, seeing if they're skimming through, see if there's anything of any value. Uh, one thing that they were concerned with is they said that a lot of these are, let me, let me, see if I get the exact wording. Uh,
1: I like the one where they said on the bright side of this dark reality, the artifacts are accessible. Mast from some of the shipwrecks protrude from the water a century after sinking. The remains of other wrecked vessels rest at the shoreline like beach trails. And those that are the fully sunk, require only a quick trip and a glass bottom boat to inspect.
0: And they do have a couple uh, tour boats up there that are glass bottoms, which is probably why they're mentioning
1: it. But how many ships do you know sunk anywhere in the Great Lakes still have the mast sticking up out of the water?
0: Out of the water, none that I'm aware of. Are you? Do you know of any?
2: I'm sure that I'm sure that's probably a misquote because <laughs> it's very common for shipwreck historians to talk about masts still standing. But of course, not out of the water after you know a hundred years now. But
0: if somebody's well, telling you that's a mast, that's that's not a mast. That is a dock pier.
2: Yeah, <laughs> pier pilings everywhere, but not not masts anymore.
1: But I'm curious about the other one too, though. The remains of other wrecked vessels rest on the shoreline like beached whales.
2: Well, actually, yes, they do. Uh, well, I mean, if you look at the picture here, we're showing, and this right here. Okay, when you walk, okay, because so they're, they're kind of, I think they're steering people towards, you know, Munich and Whitefish Point here. And when you walk the pictured rock section from, uh, Hurricane River towards Sable Point, you have two boats that look just like this sitting there on the shore. Uh, you do have a number of places where these things actually are sticking out of the water. You, you have something very similar to this over in Arcadia where it only sits in about maybe, you know, two feet of water. And in fact, When the water was low in 2011, it it stuck out of the water. You know, we do a number of places, like what you're seeing here on the the opening shot for this article, where shipwrecks to this day, you stick out of the water. This could very well be the Kiowa, which is one of the ships I mentioned between Hurricane River and Stable Point. They're pictured rocks.
1: Uh, Actually, that one's the Mary Gerke, J-A-R-E-C-K-I. Okay. Yeah, wrecked in
2: 1883. I've, I've been to the Kiowa, which looks very similar to this, along the shore of the you know right there by Hurricane River and pictured rocks. If, it, if you if you get a chance to walk that shore, there are shipwreck pieces strewn every few hundred feet along that beach. Be it you know large bolts, uh, be it you know uh, complete you know, bottoms of hulls like we're seeing here. Uh you know there's a the prow of a small boat sticking out of the out of the you know, out of the sand, maybe like there might be a, a lifeboat there that you got buried in the sand with just bulb sticking out. There's all kinds of stuff there, you know, in that. It's, a, it's about a three mile walk, I want to say, from Hurricane River to Sable Point there. But it's, it's a heck of a walk, and there's all kinds of cool stuff to see along the way. Yeah. So we've seen, you know, this, the city of Green Bay down there in South Haven sticks out of the water some years. Looks similar to this. Not nearly as big as this, but similar to it. We have all all the places. We have all kinds of wrecks you can see without with, with oh, you even getting wet or barely getting wet. Pretty fortunate that around here.
0: Well, that's all I had is news articles. Did you guys have any that you you think I missed or?
2: All right, Darren. I haven't really looked. Uh, uh, I haven't heard a lot about shipwrecks in the news these, these days or scuba in the news. I've been. Yeah. Kind of busy with my projects to watch the news. Sorry,
0: <laughs> no problem. It's it's been pretty quiet. It seems like the more people are actually out diving, the the less it gets. We get we get a big rush here. Seems like September, October, November, and then the, there's a little mini rush in January, February. But that does it for scuba the news. I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air one more year. Feel like hunting, fishing, or the great outdoors? You're going to want to listen to WRVO Radio. Go to our website www. That's scubaobsessed.com. Scroll on down to the bottom. We have links that will take you right to them. Have we had any uh, local diving going on? I think there's been a ton of local diving.
1: Well, I think uh, the Sweeney Group and uh, Schultz and a good number of muddies have been out. I think the biggest dive was the Hume they made last week. And the videos, if you've been on Facebook, some of those videos were outstanding, yeah,
0: I am jealous that that uh, somebody the day before on Saturday said they had a 100-foot viz, and I think Bob says it was a, I think he said 30 or 60, but it looks pretty good for even okay. 60.
1: Well, did you see yeah. the video of the guy coming down to the top of the mast, and the mast is how far above the bottom? And you can see the shift from the top.
2: Yeah. Well, the uh, the, the masts on the humor laying down, so I mean, if you're seeing the mast, you might actually be, you know, at already pretty close to the bottom there. Um, yeah, Bob was telling me they had about 40-foot vids. Um, I guess I heard last week some guys having close to 100-foot vids out there last week, but, you know, it's, uh, it's not a real deep area. I mean, it's 140 feet to the bottom or 145 to the sand there, so I'm sure you do get some storm surge. You know, you, you get a nasty gale, those are probably could serve even that deep. You
1: know? Yeah, I just went back to look at some of the, the pictures and the video. And that visibility is outstanding.
2: Have you been out, Mac? you been out,
1: all? Is I was that- out at pop in today. day. I was uh, checking out a new BC. And Well, let me rephrase that. New to me. <laughs> um, the weed level has been tremendously reduced in the last three weeks. I don't know what they did, but uh, the weed quantity is down. It's um, it's like you're diving in tannic acid, meaning I could see my fingers out at full extension. Forward, but you couldn't look down and see the bottom because of the the way the brown water in the bottom looked the same. Or if you looked laterally without putting your arm out, you really couldn't see because it, it was brown. But it was enough that I didn't use a suit. No suitor, wetsuit suit that is? I mean, I did have a swimsuit on.
0: <laughs> you were you but weren't pretty going nice out there. You weren't going all natural.
1: Not nah, the public beach. Uh, I might have considered mm-hmm. it at other times, but not. Not this time.
0: See, for me, if there was, like, an iceberg out there, I would blend in with the whiteness, but it would be a (laughs) little hard this time of year.
1: Yeah, I know Richard's been out with the SAS group, so people have been out there diving, and uh, a lot of it's been on the big lake now, and this is the time for it.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you can get out, you know, uh, I was up at Lake Superior quite a bit last week. Got a fair amount of diving in, not as much as I wanted to, but... Did get out to the Huron Islands and went to verify some of the uh, wrecks in the preserves. Went looking for three boats out there. Uh, um, someone only showed me one. Wasn't just going to do a bounce dive. I didn't see some good evidence. In the bottom, so. uh, coordinates for the southwest. Uh, the depth matched the uh, what the preserve said, but I saw nothing on the bottom there, so I didn't dive that. Uh, same with the numbers for the Arcadia. No, the, the Arctic. Um, uh, the Arctic, is a really rocky area. It's quite possible the Arctic was there and this, and the side scan just didn't show it because it was a really, you know, up and down bottom on a pretty sheer drop too. And the, uh, George Nestor, that was one which the side scan did show. And, uh, you know, I dropped the buoy on it and dove that one. And the, uh, George Nestor actually has a heck of a story behind it. it you know, actually a number of fatalities on it. There was a failed rescue on it. Um. Uh, actually wrecked right by the, uh, the the foghorn house or the uh, uh, lighthouse there on one of the Huron Islands. Now, the Huron Islands are uh, a series of ancient islands out there in Lake Huron, which uh, they're, they've been glaciated they're, They look really, really weird, because, you know, there are these big rocky outcroppings that stick out of the water, you know, big cliffs. There's, they're, you know, not a lot of shoreline to them, actually, and most of them are uh, preserves where you people aren't even allowed to go on except the lighthouse island and that's the one which has both the Arctic and the George Nestor on uh, did I did find the George Nestor okay that wasn't very far off the numbers um, I dropped the booty pretty close uh, I saw something down pretty close to, to the, the numbers dropped on it and the largest section of hull that I found on it wasn't actually was not too wasn't too far from those numbers had um, about 40 foot biz you, know, you could tell the wreck had been through quite a bit it was You know, it's kind of exposed to Lake Superior, about 65 feet of water. You can tell the ice surge does go that deep sometimes when the storms. It's pretty battered, but lots of pieces. Pretty cool dive, actually. Um, Did some diving over in Big Bay. Came across an old pier. Had a lot of artifacts on it still. Um, Got a lot of video on that. Probably looking to see if I can get that one added to the uh, reserves as as a dive location. Nice, easy shore dive. Lots of artifacts down there, lots of evidence of steam power, lots and lots of rails. Um, pretty cool dive site. Um, decent visibility. Um, with the uh, rails out there, it's you know very likely had uh, locomotives, possibly a mining operation. Um, good visibility. Pretty pretty cool dive site. I could say we'll probably get that one at the preserves within a few months, I'm thinking.
1: Looking at some of the pictures that you had of that uh, visibility. There looked really nice, and the bottom uh, looked firm enough that you could do a little bit of searching.
2: Yeah, well, the, the bottom was really firm. The bottom was all rocks down there. Uh, well, it's rocks, rocks and wood, and an awful lot of wood. Uh, interestingly enough, um, you know, the side scan, which can, can be a little bit finicky when dealing with, with a rocky bottom, was getting me really, really nice picture that pier down there, although it was only in 12 feet of water. But, you know, see, I was getting really good returns on the pier with the side skin. Um, I did manage to finally get my towfish together. i been talking about doing this for a while and had the parts sitting around here for a couple of months and <laughs> kind of did a rush job on it, but uh, ended up building a towfish out of an inch-and-a-half iron pipe and kind of took some of it from, from your design on yours there, Mac, and it uh, seemed to run pretty good. I was quite impressed with the, with the returns I was getting at least – and soft bottom, the rock bottom, you know, it was, it was definitely giving me returns, but they were, you know, a little bit harder to interpret than they were on the rocky bottom. So, you know, I, I did do my, my standard rock trip. I did, well, standard rock, which is, you know, 32 miles, 34 miles actually offshore, big bay, and uh, did some side scanning out there. Uh, did see some targets, but they, uh, in, in, I, I was up there by myself, and, you know, I do a lot of solo diving, and most of us in the mud club would do it for a lot of solo diving. But I didn't see targets enticing enough to get me to solo dive out there. Although the conditions would have been nice for it in the evening, the uh, the wind laid down real nice, and I was out there, and you know, six inch six inches rollers out there, and it would have been a pretty easy solo dive actually. And I I, I considered it, and I always kind of wish I had actually, because um, now that there are some you well. Know, I think there's some junk piles out there. It looks like when they, um, when they built the place, they probably had, you know, scaffolding and excess materials and things, you know, being, uh, run by the Coast Guard. They probably had a regular place they, 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 they finished their garbage. And I came across the, those out there. And, uh, I do plan on returning to Standard Rock. I'm definitely going back out there. I'm going to, uh, get a little bit more familiar with my sonar or possibly pick up a more powerful unit. And uh, I'm, I'm definitely going back out there. I hope they all have someone with me this time and, you know, feel a little more comfortable doing solo diving out there or at least, you know, having a, a boat tender and things. Uh, extremely rocky bottom. and I just really felt a little, I don't know, leaving the boat unattended on a rocky bottom that far from shore. Yes, I run a reel when I leave the boat unattended. Yes, I often double anchor. You know, I, I've always got a backup system when I, when I solo dive offshore like that. I just didn't feel comfortable solo diving out there, you know. With, if, if I'd seen a complete intact boat, yeah, I'd have done on that, <laughs> you know. But uh, no, I just that, that's not that's not what I saw out there. If anyone ever gets up to the area, of the uh, Marquette Museum up there, they have some wonderful shipwreck displays. Uh, Redstone Ellis is the, curator, is, is the um, curator up there. He's written a lot of books on shipwrecks, and he has uh, a lot of his. Personal information on display up there. There are a number of artifacts on display up there. They've got uh, lots of maps on display up there. Uh, kind of surprised actually that there aren't more wrecks documented in the, the marketing area, because the uh, according to what I saw in that museum, you know, uh, looks like they have information on a lot more wrecks than what we see in the preserves, you know, in the, in the market, in the Marquette area preserve, there actually are two preserves. You have the Huron Islands unit, which has three wrecks. Then you have the area, which is a lot closer to, to Marquette. I want to say there's about you know, 10 wrecks in that area. Um, uh, most of them are pretty shallow, like 25 feet or less. So they're, they're like nice, easy access wrecks. The water up there tends to be pretty clear, kind of cold, but, uh, looking at the maps they had on display there in the Marquette museum, um, it looks as though they, they've done, some, someone up there has done some research on uh, at least pinpointing, uh, reported sinkings of a lot of wrecks up there. Whether well, or not this stuff has been followed up on, that, that's another story. But I've, I've got pictures of a map in this on display there in the Marquette News Museum, which has got at least 25 pins of wrecks that are not in the preserve. So I think there's a, there's a lot more up there to, 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 to dive. It just hasn't been, um, you know, the numbers haven't been made public or the wrecks haven't actually been located. But if you get up there, real cool museum. Got lots of good stuff on lighthouses and shipwrecks and shipping history and both past and present while we're stopping in to see Marquette Maritime Museum.
0: Very cool. So uh, well, you, you almost need it sounds like you need to take a uh, uh, some, not shore support, but uh, a tender to go along and watch the boat.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going back up there. I'm definitely going to bring somebody with me. Um, you know, I just, you know, I have a hard time finding people as crazy about me as this stuff. You know, and uh, you know, I've got no problem jumping in my little boat and going 34 miles offshore. A lot of people look at me like I'm, you know, missing my medication when I talk like that. You know, so uh, now that I've, you know, been out there and I, I I've been out there and I, I have a good idea of what, of how the bottomlands are laid out now. Um, Big problem I had is I could not find any, you know, good, reliable, um, you know, depth maps of the area. Yeah. Mac did find some for me online. I just could not get a real handle of the scale on them. You know, they were, uh, looked like they were actually taken off of some, off of some NOAA charts at one point, as opposed to some other data. But I could tell from the maps that it did not appear that Standard Rock itself was like, you know, a sheer drop off. And that encouraged me to go out there. But now that I've been out there and I have an idea of, of how the land drops off, I have a better idea about how to search it. And it is, it is challenging to search out there. I can understand why no one else has gone out there with side to do it. Um, you know, the reef is very irregularly shaped. The reef is quite large. The reef, uh, you know, it's an extremely popular fishing spot. So you, you've got to deal with fishing boats. And the way those guys fish out there, uh, it's not conducive to side scanning. No, to side scanning because they're drift fishing. They, um, when I was out there, they were there were usually five boats around me, in one way or another. And most of what they would do is they would go to some a certain spot where they believe fish were, and they would just stop the engine and just drift over it. Well, now they are a vessel not under power. So now they have right away over a vessel under power, meaning me side scanning. So now i got to veer around him. And there was one guy in particular with a 27-foot bay liner that just kept on sitting down right in front of me. So then i got to veer around him. But then I realized, hey, this is a charter fisherman out here, and he's setting down probably where he knows there's fish. So maybe there's some structure down there. So I stopped veering around him. I started going close enough to him so I could take a peek under their boat and see what was down there. <laughs> and, uh <laughs> Of they weren't real fond of that because I came within about 25 feet of them a few times. But I'm, you know, going at two and a half miles an hour on a planing speed. I can do that legally, no problem. And the way that I run my towfish, uh, it's on a very short tether. Um, another reason why I'm sure no one has side scanned, you know, why Standard Rock makes an undesirable side scanning place is because when you run a side scan, you're generally pulling a towfish behind you maybe several hundred feet, maybe, maybe, maybe much, much more. Some of the oil companies doing it are are pulling toe fish behind them in the thousands of feet. Um, you're just not maneuverable enough when you have something like that to get in close to the reef. Like I was able to, I was able to get, you know, right up next to the reef and I could see it, you know, visually, you know, when you you, when you're out there, you can see it, you know, it's, uh, at least before before it becomes dangerous to you. Although there were a few times I had to rush back and pull up the towfish because crap, <laughs> I can see in the depth the, my, my towfish is running ten feet beneath the surface, and I can see on the side on the on the sonar like oh crap it's only registering two feet it's a to run into a rock <laughs> so I'm back there you know yanking it up real fast trying to keep from hitting the rocks and actually I did skim a rock or two when I was out there but that's kind of part of the game so but yeah it's it's not a place where traditional Toe fish side scan sonar it's going to work very well just because of the way it's laid out um, is it a place for my redneck side scan yeah it, it, it I think that I was getting pretty good results out there actually um,
1: I'm gonna to have
2: to you know look at a different way of doing it and uh, I'm gonna try it again next year I might, I might even try it again this year It kind of depends upon what I can come up with for time and all um, I'm, I'm looking I'm not looking deep enough where I believe thermal clients to be a real issue out there so I'm I'm only a sport diver. I'm certainly not gonna solo dive, you know, down to tech depth by any means. So uh you know, I'm looking relatively shallow. But I, I believe that you know there have been enough collisions out there that, you know, you may find you may find things not exceptionally deep. So, uh, well a boat hits that in a storm, it does a lot of damage to it, you know it maybe they didn't get far before they went down. Maybe they went you know, who knows? Well, we're going to find out by going out there and side scanning, which, as best I can determine, hasn't been done. So I'll be out there again.
0: Well, while we're on the topic, do you have any, do you have a, a recommended shipwreck of the week?
2: Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, give me a second here. don't oh, anyway, know. Have, have I discussed the Banach Burn before on the uh, podcast? I don't think I mentioned that one, have
0: I? I don't think so.
2: Give me a second. I know you can edit these pauses out of here.
0: Oh, well, of course. There's no pauses, there's just awkward silence.
2: Yeah. Well, one of the one of the uh ships that suspected been lost off of Standard Rock is the Bannockburn. Uh although if you talk to the locals though, they'll tell you that there was no uh um, there are no shipments out there. They're quite certain of that. I'm still pulling the article up here, but the Bannockburn is actually a ghost ship. It's one which is not, has not been found. Um, if I can get this to load here. Come on. Come on. But this is one which I was, you know, I'd hoped to find, but wasn't really expecting to. You
1: know, I, I, I haven't
2: done a lot of, uh, you, know, big, you know, large-scale side scanning. Now, this is a shipwreck which has not been found in the Great Lakes. Most of the time when I feature a shipwreck here on too obsessed with I'm talking okay. about one which you know you, you can go out and dive, will be it in sport depth tech depth or see even see on the shore but the Bannock burn is one of those simply gone missings which there are, there are we have thousands of those which just disappeared and, and no one knew what happened to them the steamship Bannock burn was a Canadian registered steel hauled freighter which disappeared on Lake Superior in snowy weather on November 21st 1902. She was sighted by the captain of a passing vessel, the SS Algonquin, around noon of that day, but minutes later disappeared. The wreck of the ship had never been found, with the exception of an oar and a life preserver. No bodies ever recovered. Within a year of her disappearance, she required a reputation as a ghost ship. It became known as the Flying Dutchman of the Great Lakes. Um, you know, this, this ship, there was wreckage sighted in the vicinity of, um, well, I, I say wreckage, floating debris. In the vicinity of, of Standard Rock afterwards, um, but but the ship was never found. You know, this was a boat which uh, you know mariners would talk about seeing out there. There are a number of ghost stories of people seeing the Bannockburn gliding by them in a storm. Or um, you know, there's one. You know, it's kind of air raising talking about uh, a ship that was actually headed for a reef, and out of out of the mist comes a, a large ship which they see crash onto the reef right before them and then kind of just disappear into nothingness. And it was basically, they say was the, you know, the specter of the Bannockburns to them from wrecking their own. Uh, you, know, this, you know, there are a number of you know, ships reported as ghost ships. Now I'm not kind of letting credence to these, these stories, but they are popular tales, which have been told and retold many times around the Great Lakes. Uh, ships such as the Shakora, the Alpina, um, you know, there was enough lore and a mystery about these boats when they went down that, uh, you know, sometimes when you're out there, you know, your eyes can kind of play tricks on you a little bit. You know, you can get a bit of a mirage out there, or in in, in bad weather, you might you might think you see something you don't. And you know, particularly Lake Superior, which is so well known for having you know these these massive fog banks come rolling in, and you know, you can go from having you know 20 mile visibility to, to to nothing within just just a matter of you know an hour. So, you know, it's uh, you know a very eerie area. Um, Lots of history, lots of lore, lots of shipwrecks. And the uh, Bannockburn is one of the many, many just lost, gone out there. No one knows what happened to it.
0: Hmm. So you could dive it, you just have to find it first.
2: You have to find it first, yeah.
0: And yeah. it's shallow enough.
2: Yeah, you know, And there's, there's an awful lot of deep water out there too. You know, um, you know, going out to standards, you know, I'm watching the, uh, the sonar going out, just up the, the depth finder, and uh, no, I, I marked a spot that was 625 feet going out there. The vast majority of the run going out there was over was over 400 feet deep. Uh, you know, that's that's deep that I'm going to dive. <laughs> you know, uh, there are many people who would dive it, but there's an awful lot of very very deep water out there on standard rock. Yeah.
0: So, uh, you know, yeah, any of my water- time, I was gonna say any of my time in the north, I'm always amazed at how quickly it can get deep. Uh, even mm-hmm. on some of the inland lakes up there, you know, I did some uh, camping in Boundary Waters, and you could be by the shore, and then you could go out and you know a half mile in the middle of this lake, and six inches below the the water there'd be this rock, and you are thinking, how in the world can it go from being shallow to completely deep to this rock that just almost breaks the surface?
2: Mm-hmm. But you know, but that rock which almost breaks the surface. You know, if
0: you were in your,
2: in a powerboat going at speed and hit that, yes. that, that, lake, that lake would have another shipwreck down there.
0: Yeah, right and, next to that.
2: Yeah, and, and, and you have those, you know, that's kind of the, the nature of Lake Superior. Uh, you know, and I'm sure it's a contributing factor why there are so many, many gun missing out there, is that you have areas everywhere where right next to very deep water, you have reefs that go you know, either, you know, stick out of the water or, or very close to it. Shoals, I guess, a, technically I think a reef is saltwater shoal is fresh water. Know how it works? Sure. But you you have the shoal water everywhere out there where uh you know extremely shallow water right there you know something which you could just be cruising along in a boat you know and you know in a, a nice sunny day you see these these shoals out there you know you can see them from a mile off sometimes so that, you know it, it depends about the color of the rock and the clarity of the water and and where the sun is shining from the angle of it there. But, you know, if you're out there on a a drizzly day or a foggy day, you might not know that reef was there until your ship starts crunching underneath underneath you. And, you know, you're miles and miles offshore. One of the the greatest wrecks of the Great Lakes is the uh, Ganilda, which is over in the extremely western edge of Lake Superior. And I believe that was in the 1920s. It was a uh, fabulous, wonderful uh, motor yacht. That end up going up on a up on a reef, and there are pictures of it, you know, showing it very precariously perched on this reef, uh, almost out of the water. And it was an area where the uh, you generally hired a pilot to, to, to bring your boat through because the, uh, the you know, unless you were from the area, you just did not know that they the where the hidden hidden shoals were. And the guy that owned this beautiful, you know, this thing had inlaid gold in the bowsprit. I mean, this thing you know, was full of artwork and paintings and it was that the at the time it was the the pride of the New York yacht Club this was the flagship basically of the New York yacht Club it was so fancy and this fellow did not want to pay the pay the pilot fee to run the, to take care of his boat and he drove a river a lot and then he went to get it pulled off the rock and the tugboat captain comes up to pull off the rocks says no you need to patch the holes first. And the ship owners, nope, we're pulling it off. You you do you, you shut up and pull, well, no, you shut up and pulled, then he pulled it off and it went right to the bottom. And right next to this rock that almost sticks out of the water, it's two hundred and seventy feet deep and that's what the Ganilda is today. Uh Ganilda was doughed by Doc Cousteau, um, I believe back in the um back in the seventies. And Corey old Jack that it was the greatest shipwreck in the world when he came up from it there. It takes something to impress Jacques Cousteau. Wow. He was quite impressed with the canola, yes. I think he said that the, the best preserved shipwreck in the world was what Jacques Cousteau said about it. Something, something like that in French anyway, I'm sure. So, yeah.
0: Very nice. Mac, you still there? Of course. <laughs> Did you, you have any uh, safety tips for us?
1: I don't really have any safety tips per se, but I am always interested in how to survive in the water. And... Um, one of the items we were not necessarily taught on but had demonstrated and we used years and years ago was called emergency breathing from your BC. So I looked that up a little bit and I made me a little couple of notes on it. If people have not heard about it, it comes and goes in vogue when you're talking about what you do when you run out of air. Well, the key items from all the, from all the teaching industries is, well, one, you don't ever run out of air. We teach not to. We teach redundancy. We have buddy breathing. We have octopus. And even though we know with all that training, people continue to run out of freaking air. So emergency breathing from your BCD is a possibility or a possible, if you got nothing else, why not give it a shot? I don't know if you've ever heard about it or ever practiced it, but I do not necessarily advocate breathing, you know, BCD air as a standard practice, but... Only as a last resort in an emergency when you're deep and have no other source of air. Uh, yep. if you add air with your power inflator, it'll be pure. And if you got you know, it's gonna have your twenty one percent oxygen and more if you use a nitrox. If you orally inflate your B C D it contains that sixteen percent. Even if you suck your tank dry, you're probably gonna have a little bit on your regulator and you can dump that in your B C. Obviously, if your tank is bone dry, then you're, you're totally out of luck unless you had residual air in your BC to begin with. And again, if you did have air in your BC, and especially if you're near a downline, you know, as you increase, uh, you know, getting towards the surface, the air in that BC is going to increase, which gives you more of a reserve air that you've got you can breathe. Now, they talk about it, uh, tests conducted by the YMC back in the day concluded that you can exhale back into your BCD and keep rebreathing the same air as as many times as 13 without becoming overly hungry for fresh air. When we practiced it, we never did it more than six. We didn't want to have any issues with that aspect. They talked about using this technique. Instead of free ascending with no air, you have some air as you rise, which will allow you to make a slower and safer ascent. If you do need to breathe out of a buoyancy device, because you've run out of air, the key item, of course, is to be careful and don't panic. Not always the easiest thing to do. Uh, because of a phenomenon called peripheral narrowing, and that's a tendency to lose track of one's options under stress and thereby subverting the reflective nature of trained responses. Using a BC might be one of those. Well, that may be a valid consideration Uh, Does it make sense for those charged with the safety of others, if you're a rescue diver, dive master, instructor level, to not even be exposed to the proven technique of handling out of air situations or equipment malfunctions, since none of the agencies actually cover it or even desire to cover it, because they say their other options are the ones to do it, and again, they teach you not to run out of air to begin with. So my comment there would be the technique may not be viable for the average diver, due to the danger of inhaling on that first breath from your B C D hose a little bit of water, which can cause that water arth- arth- or you can get that spasm in your throat, which can lead to diver panic. Um, if you're gonna do it, my comment is you need to practice it and to master the technique. Bottom line to me is isn't it uh, being able to start a control of the emergency ascent with a you know having your B C that has some air in it, so you do have a few breaths isn't that a lot better than not having anything and trying to hold your breath and try to get up to the surface. So to me, knowing that you've got at least one more ace up your sleeve might help you keep you cool and weigh your options. Hopefully you'll get things under control before you ever need to use your BCD as an alternate air source, but to me, it's there if I need it.
0: Yeah, I want to say in my open water class, we did talk about it as an option, but there was no practical practice of it. We didn't actually attempt it, but they, they said it was there.
1: Yeah, I know the, the um, major industries this was a real big topic. It seems like every 10, 15 years it comes by uh, and TDI, SDI, now SSI, Patty they all say no, don't do that. We don't teach it. We're never going to do it because you've got all the other options. Well, yeah, we do, but you're always running out of air. People do it.
0: So well, why I... not?
1: And again, we picked <laughs> it up through... Uh, YMCA, that's when, my first cert, and that's where I picked it up. I thought it was a smart thing.
2: Well, I, I want to point out a couple of concerns that I have with breathing out of your BCD. Now, granted, if I was out of air, you know, I, I'd probably do it myself. But some things we have to be aware of are uh, C, uh, CO2 poisoning. When you're talking about, uh, you know, breathing in and out, you know, breathing in and out of it, you know, so basically you take a breath and then you exhale back into it, so you're recycling that air. Uh one problem is that okay, you you've, you breathed in at 21 percent, and now you've exhaled out at 17 percent. And keep in mind that uh, you need to have at least 16 percent to stay conscious. So I'm really skeptical when they're talking about taking up to 13 uh, breaths, you know, breathing in, breathing out on, on your BCD or even six of having enough oxygen in there to keep you conscious. Once you get below 16 percent, you are in danger of, of, of going unconscious. Uh, then, then you also have with, with the, CO, the CO2 issue that, uh, you know, if, if you are, you know, re-breathing the same air over and over and over again, you're going to have an issue with the carbon dioxide buildup. And, you know, now you're already going to be a little bit, you know, you're going out of it because of becoming hypoxic, you know, with having not enough oxygen to support life. But then now, because you're taking in this CO2, uh, now you're in danger of uh, you know blacking out because of that. But I suspect that is why your, your training organizations are not pushing to do this. Uh, you no, know, granted, if, if you are out of air and you need to get a couple more breaths to get the surface or to your buddy or whatever, uh, this is a decision that everyone has to make for themselves. And uh, I think we we would actually you know anyone that thought about it would consider it a, a viable option. Also keep in mind that when you're coming up that it, you know if you're doing this to get the surface and you're breathing off of it. Uh, to be concerned about is you know you want to have enough air in your bcd to uh keep you buoyant (laughs) you know you you don't want your your ascent to stop because well you inhaled all the air off of your off your bcd too so you know these are decisions which probably everyone should make for themselves before you're in the heat of the moment because you're not going to make a good choice in the heat of the moment um but it's something everyone has to make for themselves or whether or not they're going to go there
1: absolutely And I I think it's interesting about the aspect that the testing did prove that they could in fact do it thirteen times. Conservative to me is six. Second item is if you're breathing off your a dead B C, meaning you weren't able to add any air to it. I mean if you had like a total failure, close failure of your regulator, then you can still pump BC you can still put air in your BC. But anyway, as you're ascending though, your your air is increasing. So when you breathe, you're also exhaling it out because You're not going to be able to breathe back into it when the air pressure is greater than what you normally can for your respiration. So as it goes up, you're taking a nice breath, exhaling it out, not back into your BC, because your BC is being replenished. And the aspect about once you're on the surface, that can be a concern. But if you're on the surface, then you can manually inflate your BC. If you have the older uh, types of BC, which we did back then, you also had the CO2 canister you can then initiate on the surface.
2: I suspect they're also not pushing, you know, the uh, training agencies that are not uh, encouraging this due to how when you're when you're ascending, you are supposed to be you know, exhaling all the way up. And I, I wonder if you're doing, a, you know, a CISA, you know, a controlled emergency service descent, if you are actually able to inhale because, you know, I mean, we've all done it during training and, uh, you know, you know, part of our, Different courses, you know, I know, I had to do some of this during uh, a rebreather course and different levels of uh, training I've had is, you know, you, you do somewhat of a CISA here and there and you think you're actually able to inhale because you need to exhale. I wonder well, if you, you can, can inhale because inhale. the
1: pressure on the bladder is equal to your lungs. So you come up 10 feet, you've got more pressure in your bladder. So when you exhale, you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to do that. You're not breathing back into the, into the BC either. Key well, item, it's an interesting item that if you've got time in a controlled environment, it's interesting to do that. And by controlled, I meant on a downline, warm, you know, not in a panic aspect. Give that a shot. See what you think. Yep. Well,
2: hopefully you do sanitize your BCD once in a while, too, because I've seen some yes. nasty stuff. So I don't want <laughs> to breathe over no, that. that.
1: There's, there's issues for that. And it's like you say, if you've got no air and you're going to die, I'll worry about the lung infection later.
0: Yes, but, yeah. but if you're going to be practicing, uh, plan that in advance and maybe take a little bit extra time sterilizing because you don't want some form of Legionnaire's disease to to take you.
1: Oh, no, that's absolutely true. But by the same token, uh, the only ones I could find out of people who actually died from that was one guy who had a rare disease he got from it. He got it on the surface, inflating and deflating his BC manually oh. <laughs> orally. No, so I, I don't think it's – you're absolutely true. And if I'm in a saltwater environment, even more so, you get all sorts of fungus among us growing in that tank or in your BC. Well, it, well,
2: it really isn't that hard to, to sterilize them, you know what no. I mean? When I'm the, the cleaning cycle on my, my uh, rebreather, you know, I'm using Steramine. You know, it's a, uh, it's a product which you buy. I, I bought mine at Gordon Foods, but it's, a, it's basically uh, what bartenders use to sterilize your glasses. But, you know, you, you, you mix it with, uh, you know, a... I think it's one tablet. I don't want it to look. I, I, I got the line. on my, on my canister for it there, but uh, you know, you, you mix it with water, and then you could pour that inside your BCD, and then drain, then drain it properly, and probably you'll do a pretty good job of sterilizing it too. So, oh. not,
0: a, I, not a bad idea. I, I thought they used right. vodka in the in the rebreathers.
1: Yeah, very bad. I was looking in there. There is a sidebar area. Talking about disinfecting your BCD, whether or not you're going to breathe off of it or not. And they were talking about benzo. I can't even pronounce this. It's B E N Z A L K O N I U M chloride. And they said available at drugstores under the brand name Zephyrin chloride. But there's other items. But again, emergency breathing. That's what I do. If you're diving sewage, I don't think I'd ever want to use my BC to do that unless I cleaned it out every time.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you could you can pick up a the uh, bottle of the Steramine I think it came up with like 80 tablets. cost me like $7 at Gordon Foods. So, you know, if you're going to clean it out, that sh- that should be sufficient, I would think. Steramine. Well, you know,
1: going back about cleaning, that's, that's mm-hmm. a good item, especially in the old days when I had uh, double hose. If you mm-hmm. didn't, you know, you clean that double hose a little more frequently than you mm-hmm. think you might want to <laughs> because mm-hmm. with that corrugations and stuff, you can get all sorts of fungal- you know, fungus among us if you did not rinse your hose and stuff. So, sterilization is not a new thing. It is for the newer people, not for the older people. <laughs> I can see that. Anyway, food for thought. Yeah. Well,
2: cool. just if you're going to do it, do it with caution, because there are some risks to that.
1: So. Um, yeah, and so is coming up though, with no air. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we'd like to take this opportunity to thank all our Patreon supporters. Uh, you're certainly appreciated. If you... Haven't supported, why not? You know, for a little bit less than the price of a fancy coffee, you could be donating the show and help us out, keep us on the air. I'd like to thank our Dive Nitrox supporters. We have Vanessa Homiac, who's been a long time supporter. I think she's one of our first supporters and stuck with us all this time. She's at the Dive Nitrox level. Um, if you want to follow us, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash goobobsessed. We're on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed and our website is www.scoobobsessed.com. Uh, why not take a, put a pin in the fan map while you're there. You get to see who else is diving in your area. You guys have anything you want to plug?
2: Uh, want well, to encourage your listeners to support your local dive shop. We always like to get those bargains online, but those bargains online aren't going to uh, fill your scuba tank or service your regulators. Also, uh, any chance you get it, any, anytime you have an opportunity to, uh, Increase the funding for your local library, be it through millages or local fundraisers or whatever they have going on. Help them out. We need our local libraries. There's just a ton of information there which you're not going to find online.
0: Now I think that reminds me. I've got a local millage coming up here for the library very soon. I think here in August. I need to double-check that. But uh, they're doing some renewal millages for the library.
2: Okay. Yeah, both of them. I'm going to be hopefully doing some stuff um, in the Marquette area because I've got some curiosity about that pier up there and other things which uh, and I found that trying to do my Google searches when I was up there nothing has been digitized up there. You know the, the, the keywords I came up with on, on old maps got me nowhere because there's basically nothing being digitized in the, in the UP. So oh I'm going to plug something else too if you, if you don't mind. No go ahead. If you get if you get a chance vacation in the UP uh, what they have up there is just it, it, it's incredible, the beauty we have in the, the wildlands we have up there. Everyone seems to think that you've got on your bucket list to go to the Grand Canyon. Um, when I saw up there at the Huron Islands or in, or in the Iron Mountains, uh, the Grand Canyon, I'm sure it's cool. But I don't think the Grand Canyon can match what we have in the UP. I don't think Yellowstone, oh yeah, okay, we don't have geysers in the UP to my knowledge, but... uh you look at it, all of the beautiful colors they have at pictured rocks and all the rock, rock formations. People want to go out to the, the deserts in Arizona. No, pictured rocks, but it's pretty bad. Um, you know the mountains in the UP are not as spectacular as the Rockies, but they are mountains, and they're a lot closer. Uh, you look at the preserves and the wildness and the ruggedness and what's up there in the UP. Uh, get out there. I was, on the, I was at the Huron Islands. By myself, there wasn't, there wasn't a single anywhere. I was the only person at the Huron Island out there by myself on a, on a Wednesday night. It's just unearthly. I mean, vacation up there. Enjoy it. Please yeah. go.
0: Yeah, it, it's beautiful up there. Uh, I, was, I had an opportunity earlier in the year to get to the Upper Peninsula, and I've been a few years before uh, my previous trip. So uh, it, I, I need to drag drag my wife up there sometime. And when we get to that point where we're empty, empty nesters, or I'm certainly going to try and make a trip of it. You got to go, Darren. You
1: you too, Mac. I've been out there before. It's <laughs> been a long time, though.
0: You got anything you want to it's plug, good. Mac?
1: No, I'm good.
0: Okay, well, I think we are to that time of the show. Are you guys ready?
2: Hey, can I get one more thing? Sure. I, got, I want to thank some of our listeners. Uh, different folks gave me some different tips on where to go, different things to see up there in the UP. And uh, this was a show that was going kind to of direct me on really good stuff to see up there. Thank you.
0: Well, here we go. My wife and I went to an auction, mart in the country a few weeks ago. One of the first exhibits we stopped at was a breeding bulls. We went up the first pen and there was a sign attached saying, this bull made it 50 times last year. My wife playfully nudged me in the ribs, smiled, and said, he made 50 times last year. That's almost once a week. We walked to the second pen, which had a sign attached that said, this bull made it 150 times last year. My wife gave me a healthy jab and said, wow, that's more than twice a week. You could learn something from him. We walked to the third pen, and there's a sign attached that said, capital letters, this bull made it 365 times last year. My wife was so excited her elbow nearly broke my ribs, and she said, that's once a day. You could really learn something from this one. I looked at her and said, go over and ask him if, Every time it was with the same old cow.
1: I bet that conversation didn't continue. Yeah,
0: I think there was hospitalization involved.
2: It probably did continue with a lot, you know. So she almost broke the elbow. She probably did break the elbow on
0: that one. <laughs> and that one was thanks to Rod again. He's got a nice string of them going. Thank you, Rod. And I'd like to thank you. And until next time, go out there and get wet.
1: And stay safe. Have
0: a good time doing it.